Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Before I introduce my guest, I'm always going to start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, and to continue to encourage you to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, I'd very much appreciate it if you were to share this show with your friends, your family, other people you know. And heck, why not even share it with some people you don't know? Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, follow us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thank you again for the feedback you provide the team and I. It is definitely and very sincerely appreciated. My guest today is a longtime RAIN member. He's an entrepreneur. He's a real estate investor. And at 42 years old, Travis McConaughey has had an incredible journey of amazing highs and amazing lows as well. And that's just brought to him to a really good place today. And by his own words, by the way, he's just getting started. Travis was born in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan and comes from a family of farmers and entrepreneurs. Growing up, he followed in the footsteps of his parents and the family farm by being involved in not only the farm, but his family's travel business, where he developed both a strong work ethic, working on the farm, cleaning barns, doing all those things and driving equipment. And uh, he also developed a lot of business acumen. He's accomplished a great deal in his life, and not the least of which was, for example, incorporating his first company at age 19, buying a lot of farmland, and then graduating as well from the University of Saskatchewan with not only one, but with two bachelor's degrees, one in agriculture economics and one in commerce. He continues to live, grow, and of course thrive in Melford, Saskatchewan, and that's not really too far from the farm. Today, he remains a farmer, but with a whole new context for farming, which starts with him being a business owner. He's a very active real estate investor. He's a coach, a husband, and relatively new husband. He's a good friend to many, and he's certainly a contribution to his community. And with all of that said, we've got a lot to talk about, so let's get started. Travis McConaughey, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Great to have you on the show. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Thanks, Patrick. Sounds sounds like it's going to be a great time. Now, Travis, just to give our listeners some background, why don't you give me a little bit of a 30-second elevator pitch, if you will, or some uh, some background about who you are, where you're at, what do you do? 
so I come from a farm in northeast Saskatchewan, a small town called Milford. And right now I'm an active real estate investor. I'm an entrepreneur and we're actively growing my business. Um, we do residential rentals primarily and doing some JVs now. It's getting quite exciting and I'm growing quite aggressively. Now you, uh, you also get into, now you're, um, uh, you've been a rain member or you are a rain member and you've been a member for quite some time. How long have you been a rain member, Travis? I started rain about six years ago. Right. So we're going back to the fall of 2012 and I attended an acre event there. Now, I mean, when we talk about, you know, seemingly ordinary people achieving extraordinary results, I mean, you were certainly a standout in that regard. And what was so interesting about your story is I got to know you and hear a little bit more about you. It was, it was such a departure from where you started and where you were. I should say where you started, probably where you started, but definitely <laughs> where you were uh, six, seven years ago. So let's, let's right away, let's dig into that because, you know, you're in Saskatchewan, you are born and raised, I think a farmer, is that correct? Absolutely. And so you've been living on the farm, you've been, uh, making ends meet, being a farmer, and then you got into real estate investing. Now, what was the catalyst for the decision around real estate investing? So as a farmer, I was always doing real estate investing. So you're always buying land, you're buying property, you're in that realm. But I wasn't in the realm as a, per se, full-time investor. And the, there's a lot of challenges on the farm. And despite having great land where we live in, in Milford, Saskatchewan, great quality machinery, great people, and great systems in place, I couldn't control most of the variables on the farm. I couldn't control pricing, couldn't control weather. I couldn't control my time. And the biggest thing maybe that was the, the catalyst was time. And you're basically living for the farm and it was getting backwards. So when I switched gears, now I can live life more fully, uh, more happily and do more of what I want when I want. You know, there, it's interesting about farming and in probably people don't know about me is that I have actually quite a extensive background in farming early on in my life. My mother and my father both had families that were farming. My mother had six siblings that were all farmers and she was not, but I, I did spend the better part of my life in the world of farming. And we had, you know, I think about a section and a half of land that, you know, I had an uncle that I stayed with and we worked it in cattle and hay and different, different grain. Now, when we talk about farming in Saskatchewan, those numbers, you know, the, 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 the amount of space that can be consumed in Saskatchewan <laughs> is quite a lot bigger. What, what, what kind of farming did you do and, and how, much, how much land did you have back then, Travis? So starting out, um, every farm basically in Saskatchewan was a mixed farm. So we had pigs, cattle, a few cattle, and primarily grain. And as farming got more intensive, we shifted out of the livestock. So we... we sold the pigs, we didn't have any cattle, and we got very, very focused on grain. And with zero till emerging in the early 90s, we got we were able to do large acres with very few machines and very few people. So we grew our farm from maybe 3,000 acres at the time, and we you know, more than tripled it at the time. So lots of acres, but very, very efficient. Um, you can see a lot of land very quickly. Um, and same with harvesting the combines, the product productivity of a combine increased dramatically. So massive shift. Um, so the production increased large, but the, and the size of the farm increased because of the tools and the, you know, the technology. 
So if I'm hearing the math, are you talking about going from 3,000 acres, which is a lot of acres, to 9,000? Is that what you got? Is that what I heard you say? Yeah, and we were actually seeding more than that. So, yeah, I mean, it it increased rapidly. So now you got really efficient in that farming. And and I I want to just spend a couple of minutes on this because... When we look at equipment and the cost of equipment, I mean, it's it's high-tech these days. I don't know how high-tech, how new your equipment was, but I mean, you're looking at GPS, you, you know, you're looking at combines and tractors with GPS systems and stereo systems and air conditioning. And I mean, they're measuring volume, they're measuring speed. They're, they're I mean, it's, it's very, very high-tech these days. Is that where you were in your world of uh, farming? Yeah, absolutely. We're always basically being the guinea pigs and or having the newest, latest technology. So as an example, we have a company called Burgo Industries out of St. Brew. They're one of the world leaders in building seating technology. So we had their large scale drills. We had a 76 foot um, air drill as one of our primary machines and it has seed monitoring. So you're doing per pound for your canola, you're seeding X pounds of fertilizer. Then you have a, a separate computer running your hydro system. Then you have a separate computer basically running your GPS system. Then you have a separate computer running your tractor. So you have all these technology things, all these different windows. And it's really interesting. So you're you're doing everything um, through comp- use of computers and very, very, you know, per pound, per pound of fertilizer, trying to, you know, I guess, grow the best possible crops with the best technology. So yes, we had the the newest sort of best technology for running large-scale John Deere combines, large-scale New Holland tractors, Burgo drills, and then your smaller equipment like McDonald's swaffers. So great, um, good technology, you know, good service, people around that technology, and good operators of the technology. When you look at... Oh gosh, I don't even know where to start because there's so many, <laughs> you know, this is pretty fascinating stuff. And I think it's it's relevant to this conversation or it's relevant to, you know, talk about where you were and and what you still have some interest in and what you're doing today and why you went down that path. When we talk, you know, to give listeners a scope of dollars that we're talking about here, what would a, let's say a, a, a current combine cost and or tractor, what, you know, what kind of money are you putting on the table for that kind of a buy? So the prices have increased dramatically and it's, you know, largely a reflection of the new tariffs and, and steel prices. Now, you know, we're probably looking over 500,000 for a combine, but then you start adding a header on there and you'll have, you know, two different headers. You'll have a straight cut and a regular belt pickup. So you've got a couple of headers and they could, one could be worth over hundred grand as well. So very, very, you know, large cost with the drills, you look at maybe $500 a lineal foot for a drill. At the time I was farming, so a seventy-six foot drill might run you three hundred eighty thousand. And and I think so, what people yeah. and what people need to hear in all this is that you just didn't have one combine or one drill. I mean, you're farming nine thousand, ten thousand acres, whatever the number was. I mean, you've got a lot of equipment and a lot of money tied up in that equipment. Right. So a typical combine, a, a typical farm, might be four to five thousand acres, and they're running multiples of that. So. 10,000 acres, you'd have two combines, likely two drills, two tractors, two lines of equipment. Now, a lot of the farms are passing the 20,000 acres, so they'll run four combines, you know, number of seeding outfits. So this so, is just to yeah, give, I, yeah, and I, and I really want to give listeners a scope of just what you were doing and what you had, where your business as a farmer was. And that's really, 
in the world of farming, it really is a business more than it's ever been. Family farms are, you know, certainly a dying breed, if you will. And part of it is because it goes back to even why you shifted from farming. You know, you got time, you got risk, you got cost, you got no control over the weather. I mean, there's so many variables in a business called farming that you you step back from it. Now, when you you've said we a couple of times in this conversation, is this a family farm? Was you were you working with your your father, your grandfather, uncles? Where what was it? What was your farm all about at the time, Travis? Right. So. I come from a lineage of farmers, so all my ancestors basically up to our generation were farming. My grandfather's both had farmed. Um, my dad farmed with his father. Um, when I got farming, I started farming with my father and my, my parents. And when we were farming, I ran a company and they, they have a company. So those two companies were active in our farm. It's a family farm, but basically all the large farms now are you know groups of companies farming. Right. And so you grew up in it. You're, you know, you're, you're riding a tractor before you can walk. You're doing all the things that (laughs) young farmers do. And, and of course, within all of that, there's certainly the entrepreneurial spirit is being really developed and born because you don't know any different. Did you ever work off the farm, Travis? That basically never. We had secondary businesses that were not on the farm, but you know, I've never, never had a job. Um, it was funny when I started filling out deductions for employees, I really didn't know what to do because I never had a job and I had to kind of Google and figure out how do I pay people. It's sort of normal. <laughs> yeah, it was a whole new learning curve. <laughs> so when you decided to leave the farm, was that a, I mean, you were working with your dad, you're working with other family members and I was at Travis going, I'm out. I want to get out of this whole farming thing and I'm off on another journey. How did that transpire for you? Because in in my world, in the most simplest form it's like trevis the farmer now the real estate investor but it's really trevis the farmer business owner now real estate focused business owner so give me a little bit of that transition for off the family farm and working with your family well it's interesting because i still farm so we have a joint venture and we you know we work really well with a with the guy that farms the bulk of our land and so that still exists so you know we're sharing in the risk we're sharing in the rewards so, um, I guess my parents' farm and my farm are part of that joint venture. Um, so backing up, I actually didn't completely leave the farm. It's still there, but I'm not the guy actually running the machines. When I was farming, I, I started buying property aggressively in about 2010. And we started, you know, I started, you know, picking up houses and more and more units. So when I got into the fall of 2012, I had about five full-time employees. So despite farming, I was still growing and running a lot of people in my community. So they're running in Melford, doing work, um, fixing houses, renovating houses, renovating buildings. So there was one business going on in the background, plus the farm on the forefront. Where did you get the going from owning real estate that was farming focused and you're growing grain and doing all the things you're doing? Where, when did the light bulb come on for you that's saying, hold it, real estate's great, I own a lot of it in Saskatchewan. Where did you finally have a shift that said, I want to do residential and start renting out properties in, in a buy and hold strategy? I think that's primarily what you're doing is buy and hold. Yeah, um, primarily. Yeah. So if we back up to the year 2000, I finished a couple of university degrees and I came back um, from Saskatoon. I'd been farming actively in the summers and for the last couple of years in university, right through the fall. So I got back to Milford and I was looking for something to do. 
So as a result, I picked up a house that had a basement suite. We made the one two-bedroom unit into two one-bedroom units. I got my hands wet in residential real estate. So every winter we were we had less to do because you know there's snow on the ground. We're hauling out grain. We're dealing with you know business stuff, but not actively in the field. So I did a number of deals, which led up to 2010. And in 2010, basically, I started. I'd been reading a lot of books, and I took a few very um, sort of introductory real estate seminars. And they're the high powered seminar. But what I took from that is there's more ways than your traditional way to buy property. And I said, this is cool. I can go into my town and I can pick up at the time cheap houses. And, you know, they rent really well, they rent easily. And I can, you know, keep growing that and I can be creative and and keep growing. So I started buying houses at the time at about $40,000 a piece. And, you know, I was late into the game because those same houses might have sold for half of that, you know, three or four years previous. And now they're worth maybe double that. So it's interesting that I saw no risk in buying a $40,000 house when I was spending so many hundreds of thousands of dollars on the farm. It's like another house. I'll just, you know, go buy one a month. Why not? Yeah. I mean, the, the numbers get so big in the farming that you were doing that 40 grand is like, gosh, you know, this is cheap. Now, where where in Saskatchewan were you buying, Travis? So, as my farm's in northeast in Milford, so we're 170 kilometers out of Saskatoon, um, and I was actively farming, and I invested in my local market. So, I was primarily buying just in my town of Milford. The interesting thing about Milford, and when I do um, advising for, for other investors, I say, I'm investing in a market that is stable and boring. And Milford is not... Um, the prices there are not based on a Lloyd Minster where we have oil and heavy resources. So if you have oil and gas, Lloyd Minster now has 470 active MLS listings. Milford has about 40. So we're dealing with a town of six and a half thousand that isn't cyclical. We have long, long-term stable rental markets. So it's, you know, a, a good market based on agriculture and based on manufacturing. And we're a hub for the area that we're in. So stable and boring are the two key words to where I invest. Well, when you look at stable and, or well, hold it, before we even get into that, go back. <laughs> you, you gave me so many points of, that I'm, I'm interested in and in digging into a little bit. You know, Travis, you went to university, you got a couple degrees. What were your degrees in, just out of curiosity? So the first one was agriculture economics. And why economics? Well, I knew I wanted to do an agriculture degree, but I didn't see how I could actually apply any of the science to modern farming. I'm not the guy that can play around with genes or play around with X, Y, Z science related. So I said, this doesn't make sense. So I took the business side of agriculture at the time. There was no egg business major. So I did an egg business minor and I did an egg economics major. So that was the first thing. The second was a bachelor of commerce with a major in general business. So I got basically the groundwork to you know, in business, um, very non-hands-on and very universities fail, you know, largely in, you know, it's not hands-on and you don't really get a feel for how businesses actually operate. Although the teaching's good, it's a lot of stuff in the book and, you know, not practical coming home. Now on the back to the house uh, conversation, you know, yeah. when you look at 
the area that you're investing in, we talk about stable and, and boring, I guess, overall. <laughs> um, but so are you investing in, in this thought process? You know, do you, do you foresee a lot of equity appreciation in this, in this investing that you're doing, or are you more looking for the future cash flow that you generate as mortgages get bought down and start to, you know, increase cash flow? Yeah, so my comment on that is a person should never invest based on appreciation. You have no idea if it's going to appreciate or depreciate. I want it stable and I want to have good cash flow and I want to have mortgage pay down. So yes, I'm looking for mortgage pay down. I'm looking for cash flow. I'm looking for forced appreciation because that's something I can control. So yeah, in my market, you know, I, I go and I seek out deals that are ugly from in some way, and I reposition them. I could have an, a great house that's basically priced not to market and buy it and have a lot of equity, or I could buy an ugly house that needs a lot of work and create a lot of money. So you can buy good, you can buy ugly, but it'd be the same if I know what the, you know, after repair value on a building is, I know that, and I know what it's gonna rent for in my market. I know I'm okay. Now you're you're not the guy picking up the hammer when you're doing these renovations, or are you pretty hands-on given your background, or are you really running crews and managing, you know, uh, uh, you know the trades that are doing the work on the properties that you're buying? Yeah, so interesting question. So going back to the farm, I was heavily involved in construction, and I had built a number of buildings on the farm. I had done it hands-on. I had framed. I've wired. I've plumbed, I've done it all. So I understand that on a really, really deep level. Um, today, you know, what's a hammer? I, I don't pound nails. But that's not to say that I'm not the guy that's not willing to get his hands dirty. I'm willing to pick up tools if I need to. I'm willing to, you know, clean houses. I'm willing to, you know, be in the trenches with the guys. So, but that's not, that's not the work that you're actually doing. That's, that's always a, that's, but that's a sign of a good leader. You know, somebody that, you know, there's, there's the story of the, you know, of the general, of the general, you know, managing his troops and he's watching his supervisor berate his troops who are digging trenches and the general gets off the horse and jumps in and starts digging trenches. And he says to that captain or whoever it was, he says, you know, sometimes you got to know when to get off your horse and, and start digging. And, you know, so, so on this note, I do, I do have a manager in my main market. So I, I deal with three primary markets right now in the main centers of Milford and Tisdale, Saskatchewan. I have a, you know, a crew that runs there. They're all in house and they're all employees out of the town of Nippon. So we're going about hundred kilometers Northeast of Milford. I, I run a guy and he's the major in charge of the projects, but he's a sub and he has other work as well but he's managing my projects there. So we do run crews. We run multiple crews. We're also renovating a business in Saskatoon now. And there's a general there and it's a property management company. So we've got multiple things going on, but on the, at the core of each, there's, there's a leader. And then I'm leading the people. Now you're 40, you're in your early forties today. And, right. you know, so we go back six, eight years when, you know, when real estate really started to, enter your life around rain anyways, around that thought process back to 2000, when you started saying, you know, I want to invest in real estate. What was the catalyst for the thought that I'm going to get off the phone, the farm? So where, when, when, how old were you when you just said, you know, this whole farm thing 
doesn't make sense to me anymore. It's uh, a like family business. Got it. But I, I can't be in the trenches, you know, jumping on combines and driving tractors and doing all the things that farmers do. When did that light bulb go on for you? It was always a bit challenging farming and living sort of really, really close to the northern farming periphery. So we're maybe one hour and there's no farming in North America past us. So you're dealing with a really short season. So always farming, we weather was a major, major problem. So getting the crops in timely in the spring and getting them off in the fall was always tough. Um, then on the cost, on the side of that, you're always, because of that, you're challenged with time and you're challenged with all the things that go into farming. So farming isn't easy and it, it always crosses people. It was always crossing my mind, you know, this isn't necessarily the best business because there's so many things I can't control and so many things I'd like to have more control over, but I couldn't. Um, the big, the big thing that started changing when I, you know, I, the year started going by and you're sort of stuck on the farm and you're stuck on a combine for hours on end or a tractor for hours on end and you're wanting to be done and you just can't be done. And I remember in the fall of 2012, we had wonderful crops and one night the wind blew as an example. And I think it took about 30 or 40 bushels per acre off the top of our oats. I'm like, this is brutal. And when the wind blew, it took all our canola and it spread it out over every, every square foot of the field. So not only are you going up the swath, but you're also going back down to pick up all the blown, blown canola. So that particular fall, I put over 400 hours on a combine. And it was really, it's sort of mentally draining and very, very mindless. So you're going at, you know, eight or nine miles an hour at the combine as fast as it'll go, picking up, a, you know, basically nothing because the swath split in two. And, you know, working as many hours as you could. So you're mentally drained, you're physically drained. And I said, you know, do I really need to be doing this? We had built an incredibly well-run, you know, successful farm. We weren't, you know, we weren't hemorrhaged by debt. We weren't hemorrhaged by all these things a lot of farms today, you know, struggle with. Um, everything was working well, but at the end of the day, I didn't have the time. It was getting really challenging. And at the end of the day, I didn't have the control over my business. I basically wanted more control and I wanted more time. So, you know, under rain, I, I didn't really know much about rain and I'd read a book and, you know, it may have been, you know, Don Campbell's authentic Canadian real estate book. I'm not sure, but they talked about this rain group and I said, okay, let's see what it's about. So I actually randomly hopped on an airplane, flew to Calgary for one evening for a two hour meeting. So I drove to Saskatoon, that's two hours, hopped on a plane another hour, went to a meeting and flew home either that night or the next morning. So I said, you know what, this, this rain, there's something there. And I didn't know exactly what. And that fall after the 400 hours in the combine, I said, I'm going to go to, to this rain program. I'm going to see what it's about and see, you know, what path it leads me down. And what a, what a turning point. In the background, so you you got that. Uh, I'm assuming you came to an acre event at that time, and I and I and I'm going back in my memory banks, and I don't recall. But was that you came to an acre event for the two and a half day, the Friday, Saturday, Sunday? Right. Now, in the background, are you having conversations with your family about this because you're making a pretty, you know, you're you're contemplating making a pretty major shift. And, you know, it's a family farm. I don't know if you have brothers. Do you have siblings that are, are there to pick up some slack as well? 
Yeah, so I have two brothers. They're both um, electrical engineers. They both live um, in Europe with their PhD. So they're, at the time, they were more local, but or semi-local. Now they're both living in Germany. So no, they're not around. And no, there's nobody else to pick up the slack other than, you know, hired employees. So you're in the background, are you, are you actually having conversations with your, your folks, your dad, you know, the others on the farm saying, you know, this isn't working for me anymore. I, I have to plan a transition out of here. Is, is that the kind of conversations you're having? Had you come to that place yet? Well, there's a few things happening. So we are also running a successful international travel business and the travel business had grown leaps and bounds and it had gotten, you know, a lot of people involved, um, always on the road. We were spending a lot of time doing that. And as I started growing my real estate business, I was, I picked up maybe 20, 30 doors at the time. And I was getting very, very focused into real estate. And my parents, you know, looking back to 2012, they're in their seventies. And I said, or, you know, my dad was in his seventies, my mom in the late sixties. And I said, you know, they're getting older. I looked at our team on the farm and they're also getting older. And I said, you know, we're running this team of great people, but the bulk of them are older. We have some young people. So, so labor moving forward was a challenge. Um, with our travel business, we'd actually, when I shifted gears, we actually sold the travel business. So, so we shifted out of that and it freed up more time for me to focus on real estate. So on one hand, I've got this crew of older people on the farm that I'm working with. And then we have the, you know, my team of employees running in Melford in my residential real estate business. And I was like, it becomes at some point you get too much on the go and something has to give. And the history of basically every farm in Saskatchewan, and I have lots of friends and, you know, they're, they basically never retire. The farmers, they'll be on a tractor at 85 years old, 90 years old. And until some major change happens, they'll still be farming. And I said, my parents have worked so hard. I've worked hard. We don't need to keep farming or we don't need, need to keep farming at that level. We're still farming, but we don't need to be hands-on. So, so did, that's, that was the other big challenge. And, you know, we had the conversation and we shifted. So then did you then step back from it and go, I'm going to manage this as opposed, so in other words, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll do the hiring, I'll do the firing, I'll, I'll, I'll get the systems in place to make sure that we have a great team of people on, you know, on the dirt riding tractors, doing the things that they're doing so that you actually became the, I'm going to say the CEO truly of owning a business as opposed to being the business. Is, was that a, is that a yeah. reasonable shift to, that you had? Well, sort of the, the main thing is we found a great person that was like-minded, you know, similar machinery, um, farming next to us and running a very, running multiple businesses very successfully. So you get a, you know, an entrepreneur that's a farmer that understands what we're doing. And we entered a joint venture with him, much like you do with finding a, you know, our joint venture partner in real estate. We found this guy and he has the team. He has, you know, a young team of staff. He has the equipment and he has the tools necessary to run a great operation. So his operation is, you know, ours is part of his operation now. So it, it, it's working very well. You know, I think there's a, I don't want to minimize, or I don't want to step over the conversation that is, what is it, how is it feeling for you when you're going through all of this? Are you, 
Are you being really pragmatic? Because, of course, as you describe it, it all seems, okay, well, I just did this and I just did that and then we just did this. I mean, but behind the scenes, how are you feeling about that? And and how are you in your own, I'll call it professional growth or professional development, personal development, what's going on behind the scenes that's really driving you forward and, and can, you know, making you go down this path and continue on this journey or how are you being supported around that? Cause these are not easy decisions. And, and as we, you know, as I sit here, even looking at you, cause we're on a zoom call, um, you know, it's all pretty chill and I got this and, you know, that's what I did, but it, you know, the, in behind this, in the lessons that we share with people listening in, I'm sure there's some, a lot of contemplation. There's a lot of conversation. Is there some fear in behind all of that? What kind of things are going on for you in behind? I mean, it's challenging shifting gears and shifting gears, sort of like doing a 360. So you're having to have a lot of belief in the person that you're working with, like mass belief. If, if they're sort of having a struggle, I'm having a struggle. And I knew that, you know, we've, like there's government programs there. So at the end of the day, you know, there's going to be something there from the farm. So that's, that's always there. So, you know, that's there. Um, I always know that I have my, my fallback is my residential real estate that I bought. So I could remove the farm and I'm still okay. But if the farm continues to do well, it's going to be fantastic. And, you know, thankfully this many years later, we've, you know, it's, it's worked out quite well. So I guess we made good, good decisions at the time. Um, the better thing is my parents actually are getting a chance to retire. My dad's 76 now, my mom's 72, and uh, they're traveling significantly. Um, they're able to go to Germany and spend time with their grandchildren. So that's exciting. The other thing at the time going through my head, if I, I said, if I'm going to keep working sort of like a dog and you're, you're just grinding and, and the hours and the time's just going by, I'm getting older without a family. And I said, if, if this is going to be how it is, you know, I'm going to be 60 years old. I won't have a family. I won't be happy. I won't, although you're successful, you know, you're far from successful in other aspects of your life. So, you know, the business isn't everything like it, it doesn't, you're, if you're not happy in your life and everything else going on, why have the business? So I said, I don't need that business anymore. I don't need to be so active in that business and I can shift gears and it'll be okay. So you were pretty, you had a, a, you know, we talk about what's your why or what's your Belize. I mean, for you, there was a big shift. It was pretty compelling going, you know, I'm not going to be, you know, a single farmer when I'm 60 years old riding a tractor. Cause I have, you know, I'm compelled to have a family. I'm compelled to have a lifestyle and, and a life off the farm. And so at the end of the day for you, there was a pretty big why to keep you moving forward. Maybe some of the challenges you faced when I, when I talk to so many business owners, and this is such a shift for many is that they say, well, I don't want to be in the grind of the business every day. You know, it's, it's okay. But at some point you you need to step back. If you want to scale, if you want to grow, you can't be the only person in the show, but they make the mistake of they abdicate. They don't delegate, they abdicate and they don't do it in a mindful way. So then they find themselves being drawn back into the business or they're challenged by the business. In your case, you're sounding pretty thoughtful and pragmatic and you have a big why. 
are you then sitting down with your dad and and others on the team to say, okay, what's the plan for this transition? Are you being pretty mindful and thoughtful of the of a plan to transition? Yeah, absolutely. When you when you go into something like that, we got our you know first is having the conversation with the whole family and making sure we're all on the same page. The next part of the conversation is you talk with the accountants and you talk with your with the lawyer and you make sure that okay, we're setting up a structure that's going to work. And then you talk with the joint venture partner and you make sure that what we have going is going to be continued in, you know, in a way that's mutually beneficial for everybody. So you don't go in, you're not looking like we're just looking for everybody to be happy and make sure that, you know, we aligned ourselves with somebody. So he had the tools in place to say double his farm overnight or significantly increase the size of his farm. It takes a big, the right mindset for on his side to, you know, to do what he did as well. So it's, it's this whole team effort. And if we weren't very, very coordinated, it could have been a huge disaster. When you consider the real estate investing that you're doing now, and you look at rain and the community of rain, I mean, part of what you've done and I've witnessed you doing is you're, you surround yourself with like-minded people. I mean, certainly the rain community has always been, that's been one of the foundational things about rain is being able to surround yourself with like-minded people. You do that in Saskatchewan as well, though. You've got a good community of other like-minded investors. Is that, is that the case, Travis? Yeah, absolutely. And for, for many years, I struggled with having like-minded people around me. And I struggled to, you know, basically to sit down with somebody and, you know, share the stories about being the landlord, about buying property, about doing financing. And there really wasn't, there was a very, very limited number of people that I could work with in that way. So early on, I'd had a business partner and, you know, we, we grew successfully, um, sort of slowly, but we learned together. And then fast forward, I started, you know, enter rain. I got to know some people in rain and because I have to travel to go to rain, I don't go to monthly meetings, but I've got some really good friends through rain, um, enter Saskatchewan. We actually got a fellow rain member in Saskatchewan and, you know, I'll do a shout out to Edna Keep. And Edna runs a group um, called Prairie Real Estate Investment Group out of Regina. And it's a strong group of Saskatchewan, mostly Saskatchewan people. And when I started getting involved in that, it sort of, it turned on some lights. So now we had local people that we could rely on, much the same as Rain. Fast forward a little bit, there was another group running in Saskatoon, similar to Edna's. And, you know, to, to, that group was um, slowing down. So we actually kept it going. So we have a group called the Real Estate Investment Group of Saskatchewan, and we run it in Saskatoon. Um, it only started in January of this year, but it's we took over another group that was running business meetups. And our group has, you know, it's getting really good. Um, lots of stuff's happening. So we do have a like-minded group of people that are local now. And that's really inspiring. It's It's interesting, and it's been fantastic. So what I was missing in Milford, we now have throughout Saskatchewan. And although we're not primarily rain in Saskatoon, most of the people that are action takers in our group are rain members or going to the acre events. So this has been, you know, it's been awesome. Um, I can't say enough about, you know, getting that strong group of people around yourselves and 
keep having the conversations with people about what you're doing, how to move forward, setting goals and taking action. So that's, that's been fantastic. Are you, do you describe yourself as, was there a time when you describe yourself as an introvert or an extrovert? Have you always been pretty outspoken or what, what was the case for you, Travis? Yeah, well, it's interesting looking back. So I'd say I'm an extrovert, but I get into certain situations and I can be fairly uncomfortable if, if you get a bunch of people that, you know, they, you think they're important or they think they're important and that can be challenging. But once I start understanding different groups and different, um, how groups operate, you know, absolutely extroverted. And I, you know, I thrive on that. Do you have a philosophy around business? Something that you, you know, do, do you have your own kind of mantra or your own tagline that you always, you know, link to in, in the world of being an entrepreneur, whether it be a farmer or a real estate investor, is there something in it for you that you really operate on top of, which is foundational for you? Yeah, well, sort of the key in a lot of business and, I don't know if this is a foundational thing or not, but if you, like I say, taking immediate decisive action and a lot of people get scared of stuff. Um, I have a quote on my computer. It says, fear is holding you back. Now, if you're always scared about taking the next leap, you're really not going to get anywhere and you're not going to get anywhere fast. So when I was farming and it became say 10 at night and you realize that, you know, the temperature is still 15, 20 degrees out, you know that, we can keep combining. So you might actually combine the whole night. So you make a split second decision and you keep going. So me being sort of a mantra is I take action. I take immediate action. I'm in the world of real estate. If I see a deal, I've usually been there and made an offer and a counter offer before most people even know that it's, it's listed. So it's hard to compete against somebody when, you know, they're so quick and decisive about things. If I have 60% of the 60, 70% of, if I know that I jump in and I jump all in and I'm really quick about making it happen. And I know on the back end, if I, I can always figure out a solution to the problem. It's nothing I haven't encountered before. And if it's something completely new, there's always, you know, roads I can turn and people I can ask how to solve the problem. You know, you make a good point around being decisive, uh, Jean-Guy Francoeur and I did a podcast earlier this year and we talked about decision and, you know, Jean-Guy Francoeur is, is in fact our chief growth officer and, and he's a decision maker. I mean, that's his world. He, and his, you know, the joke that we always had is Jean-Guy's the guy who jumps out of the airplane without a parachute and he knows that he'll build a parachute on the way down and it'll be fine. So he's very quick to make decisions and he, and from a basic philosophy is that you decide and then that decision leads to the next decision, which leads to the next decision. And there is no right or wrong decisions. There's just a decision that drives the next decision. So in, in somewhere in your world, you, you know, you say, well, 60, 70% is enough information. I'm going to decide and I'm going to go or not go. And you're quick to make that decision. And we see often, and I'm sure you've witnessed it as well, is that a lot of people, that's where they get stuck is they're indecisive. They need they, they think in their mind that they need a hundred percent assurance before they can make a decision yet decide that drives, a, that drives the next decision. So in, in that whole philosophy of making a decision, Travis, is there, are you, 
hyper aware of the decision and how you process or how do you move forward in that? What, cause you didn't start out that way. I'm sure you, I mean, or maybe you did. Was there a point where you weren't as decisive as you are now? Yeah. Well, if I look back to farming, you're I was always a little bit hesitant at times, but when you realize that there's massive repercussions, if you don't step up to the plate now and do something now, you know, if the forecast two days from today and you're in August, if it says it's going to freeze, you don't shut down your swath or you, you take and you get all your crop, you cut all your canola. So you have canola. So, you know, I was always really good about making decisions and, and stepping up to the plate. When I got into real estate at first, it was a little bit challenging because you don't necessarily have all the resources and the resources might be, you don't have the team to renovate. You don't have the money. You don't have the maybe systems in place to deal with buying X, Y, Z. But I realized that as you start growing, yes, you can step up massively. And I say that like on, on every deal, there's always some sort of a condition and it's generally a financing condition or, you know, subject to, you know, business partner approving it or whatever it is. So there's always out. So what's the risk? There's basically no risk on saying, yes, I'm going to buy this house because you've got so much ample time to figure out how you're going to buy the house. if you sign the initial contract. So what's your, uh, you know, so where's the decision bit you in the ass? Where have you made a decision that you go, ah, oh, damn it. You know, I, that was an expensive lesson or uh, maybe you haven't had that happen or because you don't view it that way. But is there, is there a place where you did make a decision that you went, yeah, no, that was, that was offside. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm so aggressive buying property that, you know, an interesting thing happens. I see good deals and I know, you know what, this is a good deal you know, it's worth this today. I put some money in and on the end it's worth that. And I'm like, wow, I got to buy it. So, you know, I've had weeks where, you know, I buy five properties, seven properties in a week. Like it's like crazy. And on the back end, you don't necessarily, or I don't necessarily have the team to deal with this. So stuff can sit and it, it can sit for a long time. The cost of holding some of that stuff isn't that bad, but it's knowing that I've got all this backlog of property that's can be a good property right now. It's maybe a dog. But, you know, it's, it's annoying in the mind that you're backed up so bad. So as of late, I've actually cleaned just what everything that I had sitting locally up. And it's like, holy, this is like a, you know, a big stress off my shoulders where all these properties that were sitting are cash flowing and, you know, renovated, rented. So I have challenges where, you know, I get too aggressive. I've bought buildings that, you know, maybe I don't, Okay, I've overpaid. Sure, everybody overpays. But if you can be creative on the back end, there's always, you know, there's always a way to get out of that and always a way to solve the problem. How do you, uh, given the scope of what you've been building in your real estate portfolio and uh, growing, whether it be single family or you have some multi as well? Right. Yeah, I've been picking up more multi as of late. What, what are you doing in the back end for property management, Travis? Yeah. So this is a sort of an interesting story. And, you know, when we look at, you know, day one with any investor, you're likely to manage your own property if you're, if it's on your back, on your doorstep. And I tell people, you should always learn how to manage, you know, a couple doors just so you know the nuances of management. So in my business, I actually, you know, started picking up a door, another door, another door. And interestingly, I think I hit 85 doors and I was still self-managing them all and running my farm you know, for about half of that. 
And then I hired a property manager. So in my local market, I have a dedicated property manager just for my portfolio. You know, fantastic person. So that's that's working well. The tools are in place for that manager. On in the next markets that I go into, I have subcontract property managers that just work for me. So you know, in the markets of Tisdale and Nippon, um, I have three other property managers. As of late, we've entered Saskatoon market and the Delisle market, so a community just out of Saskatoon, and we have a management company dealing with those. So there's a whole system of people dealing with collecting rents and dealing with tenants outside of my local scope. My business probably is about 50 to 60% local and the rest of it's outside of my 40 kilometers or 100 kilometers or more away. So given all that you've done over the years, you know, farming, transitioning out of farming and creating joint ventures with a neighbor partner and family, growing your real estate portfolio, now being involved with other like-minded people, I'm sure there's individuals coming into the real estate investing market that you're part of their journey as well. What do you, what have you learned along the way? So if you're, if somebody's listening in, is there one, two, three takeaways that you would say, you know, here's, here's some really key things that I learned that I would really want people to hear that I've learned, you know, learn from my experience and that you would want to share? Yeah. So probably the, you know, sort of the best key thing and they're sort of combined is work with other like-minded people. So join a networking group. It doesn't have to be real estate, but it has to be people that are on the same page with wanting to better their life. And that have, you know, bigger purpose in life and bigger things that they want to achieve. So that's absolutely critical. Get like-minded people. The second part of that is keep reading, keep finding books, finding education systems, listening to podcasts, listening to webinars, whatever it is, but keep growing on a personal level. So tip number one, um, join these groups and don't stop getting out and getting involved in the groups. Um, another thing that I say, most people are scared, you know, if you're wanting to be an investor and I could speak for some rain members, they keep showing up, but they never take action. So what's holding them back. And I say, if you're a person that is indecisive, find somebody that is decisive, find somebody, start going for coffee with them, start meeting with them and figure out a joint venture and, and do what you intend to do. So there's a way around getting into the market if you're maybe scared. So there's lots of great people. Find the people. Um, the third thing, if you're wanting to grow your business, you need some sort of a system. And your business is going to keep failing. And then you step up and you put a system in place. And then it grows again. And then something fails and you add a piece to the system. So if I look back to farming, we were growing our farm, growing our farm. and I remember. One day I came in and my dad said they'd filled 14 grain bins in a day. And I said, holy, this is, this is sort of crazy. And to anybody out there, 2,000 bushel, 4,000 bushel grain bins, they've become obsolete. So I said, we got to do something different because our system doesn't work. You can't literally move the auger every hour of, of the day when you're farming. So we started building large capacity grain, grain bins and we hooked up a grain dryer and grain legs and, and a system of grain handling. So in order to scale our business farming, we needed a basically building a small grain terminal on your farm. Fast forward 10 years, most large farms have a grain terminal, but I was really, really 
it was a novel concept when I started doing that. So in the farming wise, we built that terminal, we grew our system. Um, when I look at real estate, hiring a property manager is a system. You have to train that manager, make sure they're doing what you want. So systems, absolutely critical. Um, having the right, I guess, team of people is also super important. You talk about when people fail. And, and one of my major fails was having bad people around for too long. And I've realized you got you to gotta get rid of them. If like they're dragging you down, they're dragging the team down. And I just say, oh, this person, you know, they're going to improve. I can help them. We can work with them. But in most cases, if it's just dead weight, you, you got to cut the dead weight off. And despite, sometimes I'm my worst enemy. I don't listen to my team and they say, this person's got to go and I don't, you know, cut the fat. So right now we've got a great team of people, but it's, you know, it's taken time to get there. And it's been a lot of struggle in a lot of occasions. So great team with great systems for that team. You know, there's, once again, you've given me so many points of entry. I don't know where I want to actually start, but I, I want to go back to a couple of things. And first, and what I'm hearing throughout this conversation, Travis, is that the one, and, I'm, and I don't want to be assumptive, but one of the things that I seem to be hearing is capital was available to you. You, through, you know, through your farming and, and what you'd built was a business. I mean, one, it doesn't sound like capital was a big, is a big issue or was a big issue for you back then. You had access to capital. Would that be the case? This is a really intriguing question. And actually a lot of people think I had access to capital. So because I had the farm, I had access to credit, but actually when I built my, my friend and I, we actually built a portfolio of 14 doors and I actually didn't have capital. And people say, well, how do you buy one door without capital? Well, you know, I refinanced my very first rental property many years later, had a little bit of money there, and I took and I bought another house. And fast forward a couple of years, my friend and I, you know, put a house each into a company, and we used those houses to buy more assets. And then we did creative real estate. So it's setting up, I guess, the terms of the deal such that you can keep recycling money to some degree. So are you doing a vendor take back? So the vendor essentially holds the down payment and you figure out a way to repay the vendor for the down payment. If I qualify the for the mortgage would have no down payment money, I'm stuck. So where do you come up with the money? Or doing an option deal, I've done those. Or doing what Barry McGuire teaches now is agreements for sale. Well, I've gotten really good at getting some agreements for sale. And that's like novel strategies that you've had. So despite... I never took any money from my farm for so long and I successfully built a massive portfolio without, without that part. It was completely being creative. Fast forward a little bit and I didn't know the tool existed. So I had built a primary residence and for people listening, there's a tool called the HELOC. So it's home equity line of credit. So you can pull equity out of your house. And if you're using it for investing purposes, it's a tax deduction. So I had equity in my house. I physically pounded the nails. I pounded, used the hammer in that one. And I built a house. And I had equity, so I pulled equity out of my house. And I, when I realized that tool, this was like, holy, the, the light went on. And it, it, it opened a massive door. So I think I bought seven houses by using my home equity line of credit for my house. And then I used each of those basically as a down payment for the next round of houses. And then on the back end, you get cash flow from each of those houses. So it was like, holy crap, I have all these houses and cash flow, and 
I still didn't have any cash. I never had initial cash. Um, the other thing I, it happened by accident, but I realized that if you buy a good enough deal or you create a good enough deal, so we'll just use a small price house, for example, if you're buying a house for 40 grand and you can get a mortgage at 75% loan to value for, um, if the house appraises at 100,000, you can get a mortgage for 75,000, there's a $35,000 spread. Now, if it took $15,000 to fix that house, you've spent $55,000. And interestingly, you've created $20,000 of cash you can use for another deal. So when the light went on about this whole concept, I said, through forced appreciation and buying right, I could create cash. It was like it opened a whole new world. So in one summer through creative investing, for every deal I did, I was actually able to pick up a whole nother deal by creating down payments for extra houses. So in one summer, if you, I think that summer I did 13 houses. And if I was creating $300 cash flow on each house, all of a sudden that's, or even 200, it's basically enough money for somebody to retire. Starting with one house, recycling the money on the, on the back end with the mortgage, keeping that house, creating enough cash to buy another house, it grew very, very aggressively. And, you know, essentially if I didn't, if I wasn't already, you know, had cash flow, I would have been able to retire from a job within a summer. You know, I want to point out something. I mean, you're talking about $40,000 for a house. So for people listening in Toronto or Vancouver, you know, they're, you're, you're not even in the scope of what they can wrap their mind around in terms of buying a property for 40000 or even 80000 or or 100000 today because, you know, the numbers get so much bigger. And I just want to shine a light on it because it's kind of, it's interesting to hear you talk about a house for forty thousand dollars. So <laughs> nothing more around that. I mean, it's just the added zeros. You got a few comments though. Is all these people that are out in Ontario, out in BC, you can buy forty thousand dollars houses. I have a joint venture partner out of you know the GTA that you know bought a twenty five thousand dollars duplex with me. So you know they just have to you know come back to Saskatchewan and invest in what I say is a stable you know, strong market. Sure. We have 100% occupancy in our units. So you can buy these deals. Even if I look to places like the Maritimes, the Maritimes isn't all, you know, doom and gloom. There are successful towns there. And I was shocked at how cheap their real estate is in so many of those cities. And the lots of them are much like Meltzer. They're stable, agriculture-based cities. And real estate is cheap. So there is demand, there is ongoing demand. And I am absolutely convinced that whether you're there, whether you're even in like a Collingwood, Ontario or a Brooks, Alberta, there's stable, stable markets with low priced assets that absolutely cash flow and absolutely the model can be replicated. So there's a, you know, in the world of real estate, we often say, and I've said many times, <laughs> is that there's, there's real estate deals in any market. It really, in any market, there's a real estate deal. What shifts, because you're not changing the market or the economy you're shifting your strategy and the tactics that you're using within that economy and within that marketplace. So, I mean, that's a fundamental lesson in all of that. But I want to I want to just go back a little bit on something that you said, you know, because that was a a lot of conversation that we had there and and so what drove you around, you know, some of this as well was there's two things. First you were driven to say I want to have and I want to be very intentional about creating a better life. 
So you're being very mindful, very conscious of that, and you're working backwards from what you saw as a better life, what you wanted to define for yourself as a better life, which meant not working 20 hours a day on the farm and sitting on a tractor and what seemed like mindless work. Got it. Uh, relationship. Got it. I know that's a was a big one for you. And on top of all of that, so you're inspired to do that. You mentioned some of the strategies that you use to build your portfolio. How much was the, you know, how much extended education did you, did you take on? Because you don't know this stuff intuitively. Maybe some of it you do, uh, cause you're a smart guy. Uh, you mentioned Barry Maguire. Did you actually attend some of Mary, uh, Barry Maguire's focus workshops? Did you, did you actually I had it, but I realized that when you're around these people enough times, you keep hearing their strategy and it sort of becomes intuitive what they're doing. And then you're, you see an opportunity and it's like, Hey, I can do an agreement for sale. And it's like the light bulb goes on, like what you've heard, all of a sudden it, it happens. Or you talk, I look at a Russell Westcott, like, you know, sort of, they call him the JV Jedi. Like he's uber good at doing joint ventures. So all of a sudden I started doing joint ventures. It just sort of, these things just happen along the way as a result of, you keep showing up at rain meetings. You keep, sh I keep showing up at, you know, peer egg events or, or regs events. And you, you have this background knowledge. Maybe you haven't applied it, but you're aware of it. I think that is, you know, I, I can't stress enough for listeners, whether it be business or in this case, real estate, ultimately agreements for sale, you may not know it, but it, the opportunities can't show up if you don't know that something's possible. And first you have to recognize the possibility and the possibility of doing a deal with a thing called an agreement for sale. Well, what the heck is that? You know, understanding what an agreement for sale was, you know, my revelation 20 years ago when I, under, you know, when I hadn't 20 years ago, I didn't really understand what uh, a vendor take back mortgage was, you know, it was VTB was a new term for me 20 years ago. And then literally once I understood VTB, which was, you know, a half hour conversation, literally four days later, an opportunity shows up to buy a house and I used a VTB to buy it. Now that house was still there. And, and maybe I would have looked at it and, and, and well, there's a good chance I would have looked at it, but I would never have thought to use a vendor take that opportunity didn't present itself because I wouldn't have known that it was possible even. So, you know, what I'm hearing from you is so important is that as you hang out with other like-minded real estate investors, possibilities to do real estate differently show up and that's when opportunities can then occur. And oh, it's, it's so amazing though. Like it just, it just compounds on itself. Yeah. So in the, in the context of what you're learning, how much you, you talked about reading, you talk about surrounding yourself with like-minded people. What kind of books do you read? Like what, what is some of the things that you're reading that has inspired you or, you know, given you a different view of how you see the world? So I look back and initially a bunch of my reading had been sort of us based real estate books and the, the concepts are all good. Maybe not all relevant to our market, but then I go on to the series of, you know, rain related books, like, you know, Don Campbell's books, Russell Westcott type books. And then I started reading a number of mindset books. So uh, one of them would have been the four hour work week. And it's sort of like, Oh, this is a cool concept. So then I looked at all the book referrals from the four hour work week and I read all the books that they recommended reading. So then you're changing your mindset and the way you think about things. And this is, it sort of became novel. So you're, 
thinking more intentionally about what you're doing. Then I realized there's this whole realm of books that are written by people in the Canadian real estate space. Like, I guess Quentin D'Souza is a really good example of that. He wrote a book called The Ultimate Wealth Strategy. And his book basically talks about the Burr Method, and it's what I do, but he presented it in an easy-to-read format so other people in the Canadian market can understand what can be done. So a number of these types of books, Sunil Tilsiani has written a book. There's, there's a whole um, array of these great Canadian books. So it's understanding concepts to apply to, I guess, grow business, you know, and also create the ultimate lifestyle by, you know, having the four hour work week type idea. So let's go back to lifestyle. Let's touch on that. So first off you, uh, before we even get there, mindset. Now that, whole understanding that you had to shift a mindset was that like a bit of an epiphany for you or was that just all of a sudden you know or, or not all of a sudden was that an epiphany or was it a, a a light bulb moment or was it just slowly you realize that you have to focus on shifting mindset around some of the things that might be getting in your way or to go to the next level you had to shift your mindset because we often have conversations with rain members and with the community around mindset and how was it for you? Because you brought it up. What, was there a moment in time where you just went, I got to really start to shift some ways of thinking that I, that I have, some stories I tell myself, some belief systems perhaps? How, how did so that show I, for I you? Remember, like I used to work every weekend, most of the summer, and you're, you're on a machine or on something. And I got to the summer of 2013 when I wasn't actually on the machines. And I said, I'm going to spend... I'm going to take off all the long weekends and I'm going to go to the lake and I'm going to do activities that I want to do in the summer. And this was like a whole epiphany. So fast forward, when we look at this summer, if I wasn't at a real estate or a volunteer um, conference, I was at the lake. So I'm doing activities that I want on my time. Whereas, you know, like I mentioned, working and working and working every weekend. So I've been very, very intentional about you know, taking time off on weekends. And, you know, now that I'm married, we spend time together on the weekends, um, not working, we're, we're together, but, you know, this is our dedicated time together. So I'm very, very focused on removing the business and doing what I want with my time. Did you feel some, uh, did you feel some guilt around that as you shifted out of, was it like, oh gosh, I just don't have to get on the tractor again. Awesome. Did you feel some guilt about, I've got all this free time. What do I do with it? And I feel guilty about having all this free time. Did you go through any of those phases? I've talked to many entrepreneurs who do, by the way. So that's why I asked the question. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting because I, you know, I'm wanting to work and, you know, it's not to say that I don't work some weekends, but you, you know, that you can accomplish more. But if I think about how I can put tools in place so I can make sure that I'm free, that's sort of the ongoing conversation because when you're growing business and I'm rapidly growing my business, you're keeping taking more and more on and you become short of time. So my latest challenge is I need more employees so I can have that time again, because the evenings are starting to get taken away from me. So I'm very intentional about, okay, I got to create a better system. What's the better mousetrap to, you know, run my real estate business. And you, you know, and everybody would say this as, as businesses expand, what's the fail? Well, the fail is, you know, you become too working in it too much again, and you've got to find a solution. So you're taking weekends off because 
you know, in our world and my world and, you know, based on my own education and training, recovery is a really important part of training. You know, Stephanie, my wife is, of course, I've said before, she works at an Olympic level with athletes and recovery is such a huge part. Understanding that as an athlete, you can't play 100% full on all the time. You actually have to have a time for recovery. It's part of their training. It's they force themselves to take a recovery day or two and they don't always operate at a hundred percent. Sometimes they're uh, most times they're only ever operating at 70 or 80% and they save the hundred percent for competitions and when they really need to step up. So are you being a kind of aware of managing your energy around that, you know, taking time for the, for yourself and your wife taking those weekends or do you really hold that space as, I just need a break and I need to take some time for myself. Is that, are you that intentional about it, Travis? So, I mean, it's been a new shift being married, but I'm, so it's getting the, removing the business and also kind of clearing your mind. And I actually find that by, by not always thinking about the business, you'll be, you'll be sitting and, and the light bulb goes on and you come up with a solution to a problem just out of the blue because you're not, you know, grinding maybe. Yeah. And it's amazing how you can have these interesting results just because you're not so focused on that. So give me a little bit of a better your life because you, you've been focused on that. You started out as a farmer, you're grinding it out on the tractor. You got thousands of acres, you've got huge costs associated with it. And you, you know, you review and you go, hold it, this isn't for me forever. I need a life. So if we go back to where you were and you're recently married, I mean, you're a relatively new married guy. Congratulations. Cool. And, and so when you look at the, maybe some, perhaps the goals you set for the kind of life you were trying to create, how were you then? And how are you now? And are you, are you saying, yeah, I've, I've done it. I'm really, really creating the life I want. Is it, is it, are you there yet? Yeah. I mean, I'm not fully there because if I just sort of stopped today and finished everything I got going, I'm there. But in the life of an entrepreneur, you're, you're always wanting to grow and wanting to hit the next level and achieve greater things. So as a result of the steady growth, I'm still super busy, but that said, because I have a good team on the back end or teams on the back end, I can take time off to do more of the things I want. So as an example, back in, you know, that first summer, that I stepped back from farming. I actually, I went with a friend of mine and we were in Italy. And so to go to Italy and be on a beach in the summer in Italy was amazing. Now, when I look at, you know, now when the combines are rolling, I was in the Maritimes on my honeymoon, you know, 10 days ago. And that's an amazing to think that I can do that. I can choose to book time and go there when I want. I'm traveling more often and more regular than I had. I've always traveled a lot in my life, seeing interesting new things, meeting interesting people and, you know, going to new places. And I love that, but just actually having the experiences as a result of success is awesome. Um, so many people, you know, might be successful, but they're, you know, not happy because they're always working and they're always grinding and looking for more. Well, you know, I do step back and I do, try to take time off, take a week off, go to this place or that place and, you know, enjoy my life in a, in a different way. 
So that's that's awesome. Now you you're recently married. Um, how long have you been married now, Travis? I got married on June twenty second of this year of two thousand nineteen. So yeah, that's cool. Now uh, is 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 your wife working uh, with you in the business, or is she working outside the business? What where does she play a role in what you're doing? Yeah, right now? so she's um, recently finished her master's degree, and she's growing her her business. And she does um, her master's is in leadership, and she's growing her business on doing coaching and personal development. Wow, so that's that's a kind of a cool fit for where you guys are both on your journey. So cool. <laughs> that's you know, I guess no uh, no coincidence there. And yeah, so that's you know, it's really awesome that she's not she's in a position where she can be where I am. She can take time off. She can have her own schedule per se, and we can align our schedules and we can align our worlds. So are you driven by goals? I mean, we talked early on uh, when you had the realization that you want to morph off the farm in the, the capacity that you were working at. Was that a, an, yeah, I know it was an intentional goal, but are you the type of individual that sits down, writes down goals, has conversation about it? You have a vision board. How does that work for you? Are you just in your head going, this is where I'm going? You're maybe expressing it out loud, but ultimately how do you go through your process of defining what's next for you? Yeah, it's interesting because I set sort of some smaller goals and it might be, you know, I want to buy X doors this year. I want to travel to X places or I want to take so much time off. Um, so I have, I write down the small goals sort of on a short-term basis. I don't really have a, you know, a long sort of a six month or a one year vision. You know, it, I know I'm growing. I know, I know it's fun. I, I guess life's going to take me, uh, you know, down an interesting path and you don't like you, you can set up a goal to go somewhere and then you do a 360 or 180 and you're, you know, you might come back to something and or go a completely different direction. And, and I don't know if I'll always be a real estate investor. I mean, right now it sounds good. You know, many people that, you know, might do what I'm doing, they might get involved in philanthropy full time. That that'd be pretty awesome, or you know, become a personal trainer, whatever it might be, because you don't necessarily you have enough passive income to live, so you can really do what you want, or you can set your path to what you want. How do you define success, Travis? It, it's an interesting question. I, I'd say I'm successful in the fact that you know I I've created passive money for myself. I have time. But, you know, success ultimately is being well, having all, all different areas of your life sort of lined up. So it's your health, it's your relationships, could be your spirituality, as well as your business. Um, are, you, are you achieving what you want to achieve? Um, ultimately, are you happy? Are you happy doing what you're doing? You can have a lot of, on the outside, successful people, but on the inside, very not successful people. So. You know, I'm, I'm not all the way there. I'm, you know, doing pretty good for thinking I'm successful. Yeah, that's that's my definition. So you're like the rest of us. You're a work in progress. <laughs> Absolutely. I think we all are. <laughs> we all are a work in progress, aren't we? And always doing the best that we can. So, you know, there's lots of really great lessons in all of this conversation, Travis. You know, I admire the fact that you went through the changes that you went through. You got clear on that 
you wanted life to be different, but I didn't hear in this conversation that you were making anything you were doing on the farm wrong. And it's, it was just, this is the farm. This isn't what I want to do. This doesn't serve my life going forward. I often, as I'm coaching so many people is that they get very angry and, or, or frustrated. I should maybe shouldn't use the word angry, but I do hear some of that, but they're actually making what they're doing wrong. And it's actually, they're using that as the catalyst to move them forward. You didn't, you weren't making farming wrong as a catalyst. You were just saying, I want a bigger container. I want a different life. I want to. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is interesting because farming's great and, you know, lots of people farm happily, but the things I couldn't control there, you know, I wanted to change. And, and as a result, I left, left doing that part. So, you know, farming's wonderful. I, it's not that I don't like farming. Mm -hmm. It's just the, you know, lifestyle and the um, variables associated with it weren't, weren't aligned. Great. I, you know, I just, (laughs) I love the conversation because, you know, it, you know, having gotten to know you a little bit over the years and watching you from the sidelines more than anything, you know, it's, it's, it's not a case of, you know, Travis, the simple farmer, you know, going into real estate, it's Travis, the entrepreneur, the business guy. I mean, you have a strong education, you're uber focused. And the reality for you was that you were intentional about the life that you wanted to create for yourself. And, and I know for you, that relationship was really important. And even having time to get out and, and meet, <laughs> meet a woman was a big deal for, for you, given the lifestyle as a farmer that you had. And so very admirable and you're award-winning within the rain community. And I know that you're a leader within the rain community. And, and so it's always good to see that. I mean, as a team, as our executive leadership team often says is we can only measure by our success literally by the success of our the community and, and the members that are part of it. So it's always interesting to uh, be able to have a conversation like this with a RAIN member. Yeah, and, and on that note, it's interesting going out to RAIN and getting connected with the people and seeing the leadership within RAIN. And when the, when it goes down a level to the members and, and the members that start becoming successful and how the membership helps membership, the connections made between the people that show up are, are so valuable. And you can't say enough about that. You, I believe when you started, you came out as a guy attending regular rain meetings. <laughs> that was it, man. I was, yeah. How the heck did I get here? It's like, I just came out to an acre event when I started investing in real estate. Yeah, it's true. And, and I mean, it's like, where, where does the path lead? The, the better thing, actually, I, I learned when I'm successful and on a local level, when I, when I started getting involved in the community in Saskatchewan, I'm helping a large number of people to reach their goals. And that's really awesome. Just like you see your average person, it might be, say, a mechanic or a teacher, and they want to, you know, have a better life. How do I help them get a better life? And, you know, they're inspiring me. I'm inspiring them. And it's it's not all about money. It's at the end of the day, it's fulfilling to help people and see people getting ahead. So I'm I'm really enjoying that part of the journey. And I don't think we can step over or minimize what you just said there, which is what fires people up and they sometimes lose track of that. We can all lose sight of it, perhaps, is where are you being a contribution? You know, when we're always navel gazing, when it's always about us, that's where things really get sour. That's where depression sets in. That's where frustration lives. And when you get to be a contribution to the success of others, that's the most fulfilling thing that I think anybody can live through. And 
most understand that, but it's easy to lose track when you're trying to figure out how to pay bills, when you're trying to figure out how to create a great life. It can get very self-centered, very self-focused. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but when you get to actually expand your view of the world by being a contribution to others, it is definitely uh, a shift. And I know that was a big one for you. Yeah, well, it's amazing. Like, I look at the RAIN model, and the RAIN model isn't signing people up for these massive, expensive coaching packages. And they don't have a secondary agenda, and so many people in the real estate space do. I get frustrated by coaches that will sign up students for $25,000 coaching in a year. They get so successful, they get their students teaching, and they don't actually get the personal attention from the coach. So when I look at myself, I just went... I wanted to be a contribution, so I start helping people. As a result of helping people, all of a sudden these people are interested in working with me. So I talked to a you know a guy doing joint ventures recently, and he says, "Well, how can you raise money?" Well, you know, I've never asked for money. People come to me. I always have lots of deals. I am very open minded as to working with people, and I'm not you know paying for my ser- or charging for my services. I'm the guy that has lots of knowledge and is just willing to share. And, and people are shocked. You know, I'll tell them, oh, here's, you know, here's all the numbers in the deal. Here's how it worked. Here's where I found the deal. Here's how you can find the deal. And they're shocked that I'm willing to share everything. Like, it doesn't really matter. Like, there's so many deals. Everybody can win by understanding the, maybe the framework of the deal and, and where to find deals. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy. I get lots of texts now from people I've coached and they say, you know, here's this opportunity and, you know, what do I think? And like, they use the same tool I showed them to find the opportunity and they're showing me it. I'm like, wow, this is awesome. So, well, and you know, and that my friend is why you have enjoyed the success you have had. It's such a, that in itself, if, if people took nothing else from, you know, away from this particular conversation, that would be it. You know, when you're really there to be a contribution to others, that's where, opportunities start to show up and that's where success there's, really lives. There's one more part of this conversation. And when you become a contribution to others, it's not just in real estate. So I do a lot of volunteer work and I find that those people that volunteer, whether it's a Habitat, I'm very involved in Kin Canada or Alliance and Alex Allegiant, any of these service type organizations, when you start giving back, the people that are out there doing that are successful people. I generally don't find people that are really focused on themselves are the ones that are at home. And if you're helping others, you're out there. So you meet a lot of different people from walks, different walks of life doing volunteer work. And it, it creates the most interesting conversations, the most interesting, genuine relationships. And you're, it's very, very fulfilling. So I think like a, a key part of being successful is, you know, giving back to the the real estate community, but also the, you know, your local and your larger community through philanthropy. Travis, we could go on forever. There's <laughs> some so many great lessons here, but we got to wind this one down. And so thank you for your time in advance. And I always, you know, I, I, I like to just finish my podcast off with my, you know, rapid fire top 10 questions or so. You ready? All right. What's the uh, favorite book you're reading right now and or one that you gift the most? The, the one I gift the most actually is Don Campbell's book. Real Estate um, Investing I in Canada. The people I'm teaching. Yeah. But the favorite book I have, and I'll mention again, is Quentin D'Souza, Ultimate Wealth Strategy. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote? 
It would be something along the line of live life with intention. What's your favorite swear word? Shit. What profession other than what you're doing with real estate or farming would you like to take on? If it could be called a profession, it would be a full-time traveler. <laughs> full-time traveler. Good one. Okay. <laughs> I like it. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you get to the gates? Welcome and thank you. On a scale of one to 10, how weird is Travis? Maybe a seven. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> I, I think you're at the high end of the scale there. <laughs> what are you not very good at? What do you just suck at, Travis? I can't cook. I'm a horrible cook. Um, my wife can attest to that. She tries to get me to cook. And yeah, I mean, I I never really did learn to cook. I'm 42 and I, yeah, it's it's one of my fails. Wow. Does that, th you're a farmer, dude. Like, <laughs> so did mom and grandma just cook for you all the time? What the heck? Uh, on the farm, that's a yes. <laughs> yeah, of course, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> your room, your desk, or your car, what do you clean first? I keep the garbage out of my, my truck um, regular, and I'm a bit of a fail on the, you know, the desk. Do you have a favorite tune? I grew up listening to country right now. Actually, I, I don't have a favorite. Favorite movie? Shawshank Redemption or Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> Dude, opposite ends of the scale. Great taste in movies, though. <laughs> what are you grateful for? I'm grateful to be in a, you know, happy marriage. I'm grateful for, you know, my family and my health. I'm grateful for the, you know, the people that I've surrounded myself with and the people that are around me. And I'm grateful that, you know, I can be a contribution. Travis McConaughey, thank you so much. Today, I'm grateful for you as a guest and to have had the conversation with you. I, as well, I'm grateful for my wife and my family, my health. So thank you very much for your time, the lessons that you've shared, the insights. It's been a great, great conversation. So thanks, Travis. Fantastic. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.